Welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. This is Vody Bauckham's second talk from the Stronghold Conference put on by Trinity Reformed Church. His talk is titled Masculine Apologetics, and a video version of the talk can be found on the Stronghold Conference's YouTube channel. If you want to make sure you don't miss out on any of these talks as they come out each month, go to strongholdconference.com and sign up for the free newsletter. If you do, you'll get the links sent straight to your inbox and be the first to know about Stronghold 2022. So make sure you go to strongholdconference.com and sign up for the free newsletter. Thanks. Just to um, sort of elaborate on that, the idea is not, you know, hey, we'd love to have the bestseller, let's, let's do this. Uh, the reason that the publisher sent that out is because um, of a couple of things. One, um, this book has done better in pre-sales than anything that they've ever published before. And this is Regnery Salem uh, Publishers, so they've published some pretty significant books, but they've never had pre-sales like we've had with this book. That's number one. Number two, they've never seen a book blocked before like this book. When we put things up on Twitter and Facebook and things like that about pre-ordering the book, and, and warnings come up. Um, and so the book is actually being, um, yeah. So, so anyway, they, we, we're doing this because it's a way to kind of get around the obstacles um, that, are being, that are being set up. Um, and by the way, it's not because of anything that, you know, the, that Twitter or Facebook or any, any of these other groups have seen in the book. It's before they've seen anything. They just, but they know me and they know the subject matter and apparently that's enough. Um, so that's why we're, we're doing this. It's not, it's not just, you know, trying to be pretentious and trying to, you know, uh, yeah, whatever. So that, that's, that's why we're doing this. And I, I it just, I wish we didn't have to do this. I wish it wasn't the case um, that, that these kind of things were going on, but they are. And these things are going on because we're at war. And I say that, and that makes a lot of people uncomfortable because we don't like war language. Remember I told you, you know, there, there, is, there is an 11th commandment, thou shalt be nice, and we don't believe the other 10, but we absolutely believe that one. Thou shalt be nice. Um, and thou shalt be nice usually means thou shalt be non-masculine, right? Um, because if anything is bold and masculine, forthright, forceful in any way, shape, form, or fashion, it's deemed unacceptable. And, and, and we're at war. And that's what I want to talk about in this last session, this idea of the 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 war that we're a part of, the battle that we're a part of, the, the war that is raging in the marketplace of ideas. And I use that term, and I keep saying war, and I, I, I'm doing that inten intentionally, because part of the war is a war against the idea of being at war. We don't like war language. We think, we think war language is unchristian. It's inappropriate for Christians to talk about warring and fighting. That's just, 
just not, it's just not Christ-like. We're, we're, we're servants of the Most High God and we're disciples of Jesus, who's, you know, lowly Jesus, meek and mild. And, and, and so the idea that we would talk about, you know, being at, at war and having a war in the marketplace of ideas, um, that's just something that's, it's sub-Christian, if you will. So I want to look at uh, a few passages of scripture. I'm going to read a couple of them with minimal comment and then get to my texts for this session, but I want to read a couple of other texts before I get there. Second Corinthians chapter 10. Second Corinthians chapter 10. Really verses three through five, but I want to start there in verse one, because it's priceless when you start at verse one. If you don't start at verse one here, you're missing some juicy stuff, some stuff that we also don't like. I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. This is so, it's just, it's masterful how he refers here to the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I, who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away. Um, By the way, that's an accusation against Paul. That's a slight against him that he's a coward face to face, but he's bold. His pen is bold. Verse two, I beg you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. Um, That's a threat. So at the end of verse one, we get sarcasm. And verse two, we get a threat. Two things that people would say are just not Christian. So somehow I guess you can be apostolic and not Christian. But wait, there's more. Verse three, for though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. We're waging war, we're destroying, and we're taking captives. I don't write the mail, I just deliver it, right? That's in the Bible. And that's not the only place that it's in the Bible. Ephesians chapter 6. Beginning at verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. 
Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation of the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayers and supplications. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And so we have another war metaphor. Here we have two metaphors. We have one the idea of wrestling, which is personal hand-to-hand combat. And then we have the, 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 the uniform of the Roman centurion, of the Roman soldier. That's the armor that's referred to here. He's a man of war. And so as Christians, we dress like a man of war because there is a war afoot. And again, this makes us uncomfortable. We think that it's somehow less than Christian. We also think that it's somehow a contradiction of Christian principles and, 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 and Christian character because Christian character is not like this. Christian character is not confrontational. It's not warlike. Well, turn to Jude. Don't ask what chapter. (laughs) Jude. Beginning in verse 1. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ as Christians. Now verse 2, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Now, that is how we would define Christianity. And those who don't like war language, like that language instead. Amen? Right? May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. That's who we are. That's who we're supposed to be. A people of mercy and peace and love and not a people of war and combat. This contradicts the idea of us being a people of war and combat, except it doesn't. Verse 3, beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. The word that he uses there is epagonizomai. I love that word. You, and you, you, hear, you hear agony, right? Ep, ep agonizomai. Agonize greatly. Agony, struggle. Specifically, this is a word picture. And the word picture is a picture of hand-to-hand combat. So right after, it's not only the same person who wrote verse 2. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. But the same person writing in the same book, not only is it the same person writing in the same book, but it's the very next verse. There is no contradiction. 
between this call of ours to mercy and peace and love and this call of ours to combat, to war, not when understood rightly. And so that brings us to our text. Turn with me, if you will, to 1 Peter chapter 3. First Peter chapter three. This, how do we engage in this war? There is no question but that we are called to engage in this war. We're called to engage in this combat. We're called to, to, to go to battle in the marketplace of ideas. We're called to engage an adversary an adversary who is engaging us. Now, it's clear in these other passages that we've read, by the way, that we're not at war with people. Amen? It's a metaphor. He's using a metaphor. And, and Paul makes it clear in 2 Corinthians 10, that even though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. Make no mistake about it. it there is a war raging. And then in Ephesians chapter 6, he, he talks more clearly about the fact that we're, we're, we're battling these, these spiritual forces in heavenly places. There is a real battle. There is a real war, and we're engaged in it, but we're not at war with people. And, and, and that's, that's where we get off the rails. That's where it becomes problematic. That, that's where we're not behaving like our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, when we're at war with individuals as opposed to ideas and arguments. As opposed to taking thoughts captive. You see, when this becomes personal, and there is personal animosity between me and other individuals. See, that's when I've missed the mark. That's what's not Christian. That's what's sub-Christian, if you will. But not the idea that I would speak against error and expose falsehood. We're commanded to expose those falsehoods, are we not? In fact, this is part of my duty as a believer and as a person who would serve in the office of an elder. Titus 1.9, talking about the qualifications of an elder, must, must hold fast to the trustworthy word as taught, right? So that he may exhort in sound doctrine and what? Refute those who contradict it. That's my job. It's my duty to refute those who contradict sound doctrine, to go to war over doctrine. That's my duty. That's my duty. To call error error, not to battle individuals, but to go to battle in the marketplace of ideas. So here in 2 Peter chapter 3, we have really the, 
unarguably the most popular apologetics verse in the Bible. And I say that we, we, even if you want to argue that there's a more popular apologetics verse, you would lose because the word apologetics comes from this passage of scripture. So you can't even, you can't even use the word unless you go to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to give a defense to anyone who asks you the reason for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and respect. That defense there is an apologia. That's the word that's used. And we, we, apologetics is a transliteration of that word. Sometimes we translate words from Greek to English. Sometimes we don't bother. We just transliterate them, right? A deacon, for example, is a transliteration. Diakonos, deacon, right? Apologetics, apologia, apologetics. We transliterate that word, okay? So this is the text from which we derive our very word, apologetics. And apologetics is essentially the warfare in which we engage in the marketplace of ideas. But there's a way that we do it and it's different than we might think. I always get nervous when young men come up to me and um, because I, I write and teach in the area, area of apologetics and um, my first, the first book that I ever published was a cultural apologetics book. The last book that I published was a uh, cultural apologetics book. This book that's coming um, is really applied cultural apologetics. Um, that's just, that's the, that's the thing that I do. And so young men will often come to me and they'll say, you know, I just, you know, I just really want to do apologetics. And I'm just wondering, you know, you know, what, you know, where, where should I go? What should I read? What should I study? Da, 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 da. And it just always makes me nervous. It, it does. It makes me nervous. Um, number one, I, I, I mean, I, I think we're, I don't think, I mean, the Bible's pretty clear that all Christians are responsible to engage in apologetics. Amen. Amen. All Christians are responsible to engage in apologetics, and that Jude passage makes it very clear. And so, I'm not against I'm not against young men being in apologetics. But the reason I get nervous is because most young men, especially teenage young men, most teenagers who want to go into apologetics are jerks who think they're smarter than everybody, love the sound of their own voice, enjoy destroying other people in arguments, and think apologetics is an excuse for them to do it as a Christian. You can't say amen, you ought to say ouch. There's people out there going, that's our son. That's And so what I like to do is come to this text because I think this is essential. And again, remember, we we're talking about masculinity and I talk about masculinity being appropriate for the context. And now if we don't have a balanced and biblical understanding of masculinity, we, we go off half cocked and, and we have a, a caricature of, of masculinity. Like the, 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 our picture of 
masculinity looks like the Terminator, right? That, that's, that, that's the picture that we have in our mind. Masculinity is the Terminator. So a Christian engaging in apologetics is a Terminator. Bring me your ridiculous ideas. Lay them down and I will destroy them right here and right now. If they're new to me and I haven't heard about them, just wait. I'll be back. <laughs> but I want us to see this text. I want us to see it in its context. So we're going to take a few moments here just to sort of look at the context, kind of like we did last night with the arguments against uh, male headship. I want us to see this in its context here. Now, if you look at Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 15, it's obvious that that comes in the middle of a paragraph, a paragraph that starts there in verse 13. But even verse 13 um, is part of a broader idea. Um, you'd have to back up really to verse 8. But then when you back up to verse 8, you see, finally, all of you. Well, if you start something with finally, it's kind of a little bit of a clue that that's not the beginning of your argument, right? It's, it's not finally. And, and then you go up to the next paragraph, likewise, husbands. Likewise, again, can't be the beginning of your argument. You go to chapter 3, verse 1, likewise, wives. Again, can't be the beginning of your argument. So we go back to the previous paragraph. Chapter 2 and verse 18, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. And it would seem that we've kind of come to the beginning of the section there, but obviously, or actually, we haven't. I'm going to argue that really in order to understand this section, you've got to back up into chapter 2, and I'm going to say we go back to chapter 2 and verse 4, and I'll show you why. I'm, I'm, I'm making that argument here in a minute. Let's go back to chapter 2 and verse 4. Thinking 1, 2, and 3, he's kind of finishing up this. It's a summation, you know, so put away all malice and deceit, hypocrisy. So, so it's kind of a summation of what he's talking about before then. Chapter 2 and verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be holy, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And so here, there's this picture of us. It's, it's a glorious picture and it's multifaceted. We have this metaphor here of these living stones, right? He's a living stone rejected by men, but chosen in the sight of God and precious. You yourselves like living stones. This is who Jesus is, this living stone. You are like living stones and you're being built into a spiritual house. God is building something. He's building something in you. He's building something with you. The body of Christ is being built up into a people for God's sake. 
to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That's who we are. He's laying his foundation here. That's the beginning of it. There is a frame here. This is the beginning of the frame. The end of the frame is actually found in chapter 4, verse 1. With a sense, therefore. But we'll get back to that. Go back to the beginning of the frame here. Look at verse 6. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. That's key. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. So again, all of that is built on that same metaphor of Christ as a living stone and the stone that the builders rejected and of us being like living stones and us being built up into a spiritual house. And here, this whole idea of, you know, behold, in Zion, there's this cornerstone that is precious. This is a language that's referring to the temple and the real temple, Christ, that real temple. And then spiritually, us being built up into that temple for God. And then we come to verse 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And then here, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. There's that language again. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. There it is. So how do we do this? Verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. There's the general principle. And then that paragraph, he sort of lays that out. Verse 18, here's a class of people. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. Again, that is a practical application of the principle that we find in the paragraph before, verses 13 through 17. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some of them do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. Again, there's an application of the principle that we find in that paragraph beginning at verse 13, which is built upon the idea of us as this royal priesthood. And this royal priesthood in the midst of a culture that makes us peculiar because they are unrighteous, but we are righteous and they hate us and they stumble over us. Just like they stumbled over Christ, this living stone, this chief cornerstone, which is the stone that the builders rejected. So you and I, as we are found in Christ and live these holy lives, 
We're being built up into this holy temple and people are stumbling over us as well. Chapter 3, verse 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. And then, chapter 3, verse 8. Finally, all of you. So we go from the general to the particular, now back to the general. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, brotherly love, a tender heart, a humble mind. By the way, as I read these things, it's it's important. Some of you out there, you know, you just love apologetics and you're itching and you're going, yeah, when are we going to get to the apologetic stuff? We already have. You can't understand verse 15 without this. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, a humble mind. By the way, here's why this is important. Remember, we're talking about masculinity being appropriate. Masculinity is not just the Terminator. Notice I didn't say masculinity is not the Terminator. I said it's not just the Terminator. Sometimes it is. Amen, somebody. Come at my family. Come at my family. Sometimes masculinity is the Terminator. Usually not. Amen. By God's grace, most of us never have to, you know, have to do that. Most of us never have to have that, that Terminator moment. But sometimes, sometimes we do. My family and I, my wife and my seven youngest children, we have nine children. Two of them are still here, seven still at home. For the last five years, we've been living in Lusaka, Zambia. Um, and it's been very interesting, a little over five years, living in the developing world, living in a third world country. Um, and and there, there are things that are, that are, that are, just, that are just, just different. One day, my wife and I were, we had to go take care of something, and our kids had to go to this music academy that they go to. And so somebody was taking them to these music lessons, and they were taking our, our, our bus, our, our, our van. They, you know, I, we called it, they called it a bus there. You know, they're taking our little minibus to take the kids, and we're taking our vehicle to, to go and do these things that we need to do. And we leave a few minutes after they do. My wife and I, we're, you know, we're riding up the road. And as we ride up the road, we see this big crowd of people. And on the side of the road is our vehicle, surrounded by this crowd of people. And our kids have been in an accident two minutes ahead of us. And so I pull over to the side of the road behind this crowd of people, and I'm trying to get to the vehicle to determine whether my children are okay. And people are not cooperating with me getting to the vehicle for me to see if my children are okay. Sometimes, 
You smelling what I'm stepping in? <laughs> and it was just one of those moments where the, not just the appropriate thing to do, but the only thing to do for me as a father was to get people out of my way and away from my children so that I could survey the situation and make sure that my children were okay. Ninety-nine times out of a hundred, I'm in sin if I act like that. But not that day. And here's the thing, my wife who was with me, mama bear's ferocious. <laughs> but mama bear's not built for moving crowds like I am. <laughs> Amen? Amen? And so we were a wonderful complimentary couple. as Mama Bear is telling people in this primordial from like way down here voice to get out of the way, and those who weren't responding to the primordial war cry of Mama Bear had these hands moving them out of the way. That's biblical complementarianism right there. But that's not how we do apologetics. The problem comes when that's, that's all we know of masculinity. And, and I'm saying this is a continuation of that idea of us being at war in the marketplace of ideas and war is a masculine thing, amen? I don't care how many social experiments we do in our military, war is a masculine thing. And so here in verse eight, I say all that to say, there is no contradiction here. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. That's masculine too. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. That takes masculine restraint. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. who do evil. Being engaged in battle, being engaged in conflict is no excuse for doing evil. Again, living in another part of the world, it's interesting to see how people think about America and Americans. And, and most people around the world love America and Americans. And most people want to be one. Amen. And if I, if I didn't have the magic passport, I'd want one. Amen? 
Most people do, but there are some people. There are some people who just, they just hate us. They just can't stand us. And it's rare, but I run into that. And one of the things I never forget, a conversation that I've had more than once, you know, somebody will say something about, you know, the American military and the American military does this, the American military does that, and, you know, let somebody in the American military do something that's inappropriate. And I don't even remember what the thing was. And some American serviceman was in trouble for doing something. Um, in, in, in about, and it may not have even been an American. It may be the Australians recently you know, who were in trouble for doing something, some kind of war crime and this, that, and the other, and somebody from another part of the world who, you know, you guys always think you're better, but, you know, you're no better than, you know, these people, those people, whatever. I said, you know the difference? Here's the difference. The difference is when our guys act inappropriately, they're held accountable. Because we recognize that even in war, there's a right and wrong way to do it. That's our worldview. And that's what we're seeing here. This whole section here, this whole paragraph here, yes, we're engaged in war, in the marketplace of ideas, but that's no excuse for evil and ungodliness. Don't make that mistake. Now, our text, all of that to get us here. Verse 13, now who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? That's called to be bold and courageous and brave. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? I love that text in Acts chapter 4, you know, where, where, they're, where they tell them not to, you know, preach in the name of Jesus. And, and then there's a part of the text that says it, it, it warned them, they warned them further, right? They, they warned them further. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? To these guys by that time in Acts chapter 4, you know? Stop, stop preaching. Stop preaching in the name of Jesus or, or, or we'll put you in jail. Cool. You mean like when y'all put Peter in jail and the angel got him out? Well, you, you, you stop preaching in the name of Jesus or we'll take all your possessions. Bro, we already gave away our stuff and shared it among the brethren, right? What are you going to do? Stop preaching. Stop preaching in the name of Jesus or we'll, we'll, we'll kill you. you. You mean like you did him before he was resurrected? For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. How can you threaten me? That's what this is about. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good. I mean, honestly, what can they do to you? That's where our boldness comes from. But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Now, verse 15, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Set apart Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense, to give a reasoned response, to know what you believe, why you believe it, to anyone who asks you the reason for the hope that is in you. And then this next phrase, 
yet do it with gentleness and respect. Verse 16 is so important. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Not if, but when. This is why we engage the way we do. We have to engage. We are at war, but there's a way that we do it. We do it in an honorable and Christ-like manner, not with fear and trembling. We're not afraid to engage in the marketplace of ideas. We engage boldly. We destroy arguments. We destroy lofty opinions raised up against the knowledge of God. We take every thought captive to obey Christ, and yet we're doing it with gentleness and with reverence. By the way, gentleness is not the same as unmanliness. Gentleness is not a lack of strength. It's not a lack of forcefulness. It's not a lack of power. It's power under control. Gentleness is me wrestling with my grandsons. I could crush them. But I wouldn't. Gentleness is the God who spoke the world into existence hanging and dying on a tree. Yes, he could have called 10,000 angels, but he also could have just said no. That's gentleness. So we do engage, and we do engage boldly and confidently, and yet we do it with gentleness and respect. There's been a, a, a lot of talk recently about what's going on in American politics. And can I just suggest one thing? Regardless of what you think about the guy who's on his way out, regardless of what you think about Mr. Trump, regardless of what you think about his policies, regardless of what you think about he did, what he did or what he didn't do, I, I hope you're having conversations with your sons like I'm having with mine. Because right now, here are the conversations that I'm having with my sons. Sons, this is horrible. All, what's going on is awful. It's embarrassing to see what's going on. But here's what I want you to learn. Here is a man, regardless of what else went on around him, he destroyed himself because he was undisciplined, irresponsible, reckless, childish and unrighteous. And if his character had been different, everything else would have been different. And I hope if you think that he was 
a person in that office for such a time as this, if you're grateful for the appointments that he made, if you're grateful for many of the decisions that he made, if you're grateful, my prayer for us as Christians is that we don't violate this text by taking the position that says, because we like the things he did, we will not speak out against the aspects of his character that run completely against the grain of what the Bible says, not just a leader, but a man ought to be. My God does not ride the backs of donkeys or elephants. Because lions will kill both of those. I serve the lion of the tribe of Judah. My God does not enter into politics to take sides. He enters to take over. And the day I can't speak against a person's character because I happen to like some of the things that they did is the day that I'm no longer speaking with a prophetic voice and I should give up my office. Verse 17, for it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. God forbid that you or I, because people are going to come at us. God forbid that you or I, you know, I, I used to have this one coach, and I always remember, he used to always say, just don't give him a stick to hit you with. Just don't give him a stick to hit you with. If we know that our righteousness in Christ is a stumbling block, if we know that they're already against us, why would we carry ourselves in a way, speak in a way, or act in a way that's going to give them an excuse? Why? Why would we? When Jesus was hanging on the cross, they didn't say, well, he might not have done this thing, but boy, all these other aspects of his character, no, he's hanging on the cross, and even the men who are killing him have to say, surely this was the Son of God. Amen. These other guys, they deserve what we just did, not him. Not him. Well, for the sake of time, verse 18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. But I, I want to get down here to chapter 4, these first few verses, because remember, I said this closes the frame. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past, uh, sorry, for, for, the, yeah, for, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, 
orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. That's why I believe the section begins in 2-4. With Christ, the living stone. And us as living stones. And in the middle of it, we have this picture of us living righteous lives so that when we're maligned, it's not because we were unrighteous, but in spite of the fact that we were, were righteous. We're called to always be ready to engage in war in the marketplace of ideas, to give an answer to anyone who asks us the reason for the hope that is in us. And in doing so, destroy arguments and lofty opinions raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. But to do that with gentleness and reverence. Why? Because we belong to Christ. And that's the way he went to war. That's the way he defeated his adversary. That's the way he won victory over death, hell, and the grave. Masculinity, appropriately applied to the moment at hand, to the need at hand, and boldly applied regardless of the costs. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ is more valuable to us than even our own lives. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you want to find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com. dot